Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. I am thrilled to be here with my very good friend, Dr. Betsy Redman. Um, she's going to be talking to us today about all things metabolomics. Uh, background on Betsy, I actually worked with her um, at Metametrics Laboratory many moons ago, and, and, and we've stayed close in the years um, since that time. She's in private practice as a nutritionist. Uh, she's a senior education specialist at Diagnostic Solutions Lab. She's got her master's degree in clinical nutrition from Emory, and she's got a doctorate in nutrition from the University of Georgia. She's got a lot of experience in um, functional laboratory research. Um, again, starting back at Metametrics with me over 15 years ago, um, Betsy tries to provide translational application by relating known and current research with clinical application. And in fact, she's, you're really good at this. Um, before working in functional medicine, Dr. Redman uh, worked in university research and public health programs. You can find her on social media at Nutrition Provisions, or um, you can find her at Diagnostic Solutions. Uh, Betsy Redman, welcome to New Frontiers. <laughs> Thank you. It's great, great to be with you. And I look forward to learning from you today as you talk to us about, um, really, this is a part two of the podcast. We'll link part one in the show notes uh, for those who are interested in bringing metabolomics into clinical practice, Betsy's like, this is her um, passion project. She's put a lot of energy and sunk deeply into the science around this. Uh, so last time we talked, and again, this will be in the show notes, and any accessory um, diagrams, papers, etc., to guide you in this podcast with Betsy uh, will also be in the show notes. Uh, we talked about applied metabolomics and how it's different than just looking at a list of organic acid markers. So many of us in functional medicine use urine organic acids, um, and you're, you're really arguing for us to move on beyond that. Uh, so let's start about how you look at metabolomics in practice. In fact, let's start with maybe a definition of metabolomics, and then let's move into um, how you're using them in practice. Okay. Um, yeah. And you can pull me back anytime I go to, to any, any weeds. So if you look at like the NIH just defines metabolomics as the scientific study of chemical reactions that occur in organism cells and tissues. So we're just looking at all the different small molecules in body fluids and kind of what they're telling us. You throw a wide net and then see, you know, what stories are being told with those. Um, and before I go into like, you know, other kind of processes, there's an article that just came out. It was July 21 in JAMA. Mm -hmm. And it's a study and they compared traditional assessment of inborn errors of metabolomics, like, you know, inborn errors. Um, and they compared that to metabolomics. So they looked at traditional assessment and then using metabolomics. So in traditional assessment of inborn errors. They look at symptoms, they do routine laboratories. If they notice something, they'll do a follow-up of biochemical testing or genetics, if you see something. So that's how they normally do it. So metabolomics uses this broader view of all the small molecules. So you're throwing a wide net. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So when they did it, they looked at 4,500 people. Well, they were newborns, essentially. It's 92% newborns, but the age range was zero to 80. And they looked at 2,000 um, newborns with metabolomics. And using the traditional method, they found a diagnosis rate of 1.3%, and they identified 14 inborn errors of metabolism, that standard. But when they used metabolomics, they had a diagnosis rate of 7.1 and found 70 inborn errors. So it was wow. six-fold six higher. It includes yeah. 49 conditions not currently included on the standard screen. That's amazing. Yeah, so they might not be those things that you, know, you see all the time, like MSUD or something that's going to be really significant, but they might be things that affect people over a lifetime. Yeah. So things that could be adult onset. So MSUD, maple syrup, urine disease, sort of the classic um, inborn error that might be identified. A lot of these early um, identifications, well, with the old method, which is very insensitive, so it's only going to capture 1%, you know, these, they result in really egregious, like neurodevelopmental conditions. Isn't that right, Betsy? Yeah, yeah. So there's those things that stand out the most. Yeah. But here you're arguing, the, so, the, the, so these reference ranges, so A, they're looking at way more molecules in the metabolomic assay. And I, I would bet the, the reference ranges are much more sensitive. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. So they're looking at much more detail. So they can tell the whole, more of a whole story. You know, yeah. they, they looked at, you know, a specific pyruvate dehydrogenase alpha-1 impairment, you know, and they looked at pyruvate lactate alanine. So that was something that maybe it's not going to affect you, you know, day to day, you're going to make it to 10 years old. And, you know, that's a public. That's so fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so pyruvate <laughs> is a, you know, is, is, is going to be converted into, you know, a Krebs cycle intermediate. It's hanging out there in the mitochondria. It's associated with energy. So maybe this would be missed under standard analysis and cause problems, you know, likely later on. I mean, there's, you know, back when you and I were at the lab, we were thinking about, we were, we were looking at um, mitochondrial markers. I mean, we had a limited um, group of them that we could look at, but we were thinking about the so-called acquired mitochondropathies, things that happen because of, you know, life and drug, you know, medicine exposures or toxin exposures, et cetera. But really what you're, suggesting here in this JAMA paper, and, and again, what, what we will link to this in the show notes is ridiculously exciting, is that with more sensitive reference ranges and looking at a broader panel, we could be picking up, up really important stuff early on. Are these things actionable? Yeah, you figure that they are. Like I know one of the, the things they looked at was short chain ACL dehydrogenase deficiency SCAD. And if you look in some of those databases, it's like, well, it's, you know, it's benign condition. We don't really care about it. Uh, essentially, yeah. that was my summary. Right. Um, right. But it's like, it may not affect you. You may have a few markers. You may have some ethylmalonate or methylsusanate or butylcarnitine. But, you know, I think that there may be a difference. And those people, you know, they might want to have, a, a, you know, different macronutrients, maybe they benefit some carnitine or, um, you know, some B2 or something, but there's, there are things that you could do. And if we don't know what those are, we need to find out what those are. So kind of those mild things that we could look at. And often, so you just talked about fatty acid metabolism, you know, via a handful of different polysyllabic molecules, but basically you're talking again about mitochondria and making energy. 
And so, you know, the obvious issue could be, you know, fatigue, right? Or where there's a lot of cell turnover um, issues there. So I always think of, of gastrointestinal tract and, and, and problems there where, where it's very highly energy demanding or even, you know, heart health or brain where we use a boatload of energy again, and we're using ketones and fatty acids and so forth. So maybe a l- subtle perturbations. Right, right. I mean, to me, this article was just, you know, so exciting. It's kind yeah, of, it is. you know, conventional medicine is now like, hey, let's look at this, you know, kind of functional take on things. Right. So conventional medicine starting to see these. And so functional medicine needs to be kind of ready. We need yeah. to get out there, get in with the researchers and, and mm. see what, you know, this is what you might be looking at. Oh, we're, we studied this or, you know, this is what's said, but we need to kind of prove that. So I think that's just a, you know, a good kind of when they're, when they're moving that over, it's kind of a, like from birth on, right. you can start with a good metabolomics review. So fascinating. So, so you're arguing that we sort of blast forward into um, a, a, a broader analysis than kind of relying on our tried and true collection of about 40 markers. Um, Yeah, I mean, so, you know, when I look at that metabolomics process, you know, I look at, um, you know, looking at the whole pathways. So, you know, the more markers you can get in a pathway, you can kind of see, and usually those are, you know, amino acids are easy to see those breakdowns. You know, are there any bottlenecks in the pathway? You know, it helps to have, pathways in order so you can see them. But, you know, I also look at patterns of disease associations outside of that, because I think that's a lot of research that's coming out. You know, can you discriminate between types of depression or cognitive and Alzheimer's disease or specific metabolic diseases? That's so interesting. Can you give me, I listen, I just want to say something because it's going to bug me otherwise. I just want to back up and say that this metabolomic analysis, the interventions that you mentioned are super safe and it's not going to be risky for us to try to tweak these pathways, whether there's good outcome or not. So I, I just want to kind of hit that home. So if you give, you know, that. Oh, right. Yeah. And right? it may explain like, I wonder why this happens when I do this. Right. Yeah. So, right. You know, so I think they just give some insight. So a pathway that you're looking at in your practice, can you give me a, just a basic over, just yeah. give me the theme of, of what that pathway might <laughs> So it's that same thing we've always been looking at, A to B. So, you know, substrate to product and, you know, what's, what takes it over there is likely an enzyme and that enzyme likely needs a cofactor, which is and- probably a nutrient. And the substrate is, as you were just saying, often an amino acid. Right, right. So, you know, like a tryptophan or a branch chain amino acid, you know, and looking at the substrate as part of the pathway. Is that enough? Do you have enough? Is there too much? Does right. that substrate have lots of different pathways it can go in? You know, what's something I, I, I find interesting that I didn't realize before, the, the branch chain amino acids, they go through a transamination to become alpha keto acids. And then the alpha keto acids go through branch chain keto acid dehydrogenases to move on into the Krebs cycle. But that branch chain transaminase reaction, it's reversible. So, <laughs> so they can go back to keto acids or onto the Krebs cycle. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I think knowing all those specifics about the pathways makes, you know, makes a big difference. Give me an example. So you talked about 
disease patterns associated with diseases and being able to sort of suss out different pathophysiologies. So can using depression, can you give me how you might use these tools to identify different causes of depression? Well, um, yeah, I have some, some articles I can talk about on that. I think that um, it's kind of a combination of different stuff. I think that one of the best examples of just looking at these pathways um, are the cofactors. It's the effect of um, B vitamin groups. Mm -hmm. So I think I have this, that article posted in there. So it's the effect of uh, B vitamin administration on daily change in urine to exo acids in young Japanese women. And um, it's a great article and two XO is alpha keto. So it's the same thing, alpha keto acids or two XO acids. And I don't know if maybe that's like why, you know, they have an earlier one in 216 and why it was missed by all of us um, in the uh, right. So they are going to what, you know, they're actually proving what functional medicine has been saying. So we've been saying it without real human studies evidence and they happen to prove it. And I, you know, so hopefully we can bring on proof for, <laughs> for everything else we're saying. So what they did was they had a group of college women and they divided them to three categories based on their urine excretion of alpha branch chain alpha keto acids, um, alpha ketoglutarate, alpha ketoadipic acid and pyruvic acid. So they took their excretion, they added them up, and then they based like the, the in three groups. So the top tier tile group had the most excretion and then the middle, and then those that really had minimal excretion. And they gave them B vitamin supplements and checked their urine every day for seven days. And in the upper tertile, the branch chain keto acids decreased significantly in one day. They just came right down. Wow. And, and in the middle tertile, they came down a few days later. And there was no change in the group that started with low alpha keto acids. And then the other markers came down subsequently. But what I found really interesting was after seven days, they stopped the supplements and they waited a month and then they recollected the urine and the total branch chain keto acids had reverted right back up to um, the basal levels. Huh. And those people who had the same high levels. Did, so, what did so they conclude? They conclude that there, you know, that there may be some minor, some, you know, minor enzyme uh, alterations that aren't, you know, they're not going to cause it a true, what we think of as inborn error. Yeah. They're going to be fine, but maybe they will be a little more fatigued, like you said. Right. You well, know? what about their diet though? Did they, did they do any kind of a dietary analysis or? Um, I'm yeah, assuming they, they were health, healthy at baseline. So maybe not like a malabsorption issue, but yeah, <laughs> right. go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So there, they also, the same group has a um, 216 study and it was, it's a really nice review of, um, of how the diet impacts. So they did the same thing where they grouped women into three groups based on alpha keto acid um, excretion and gave them B vitamins. But when they first put them into groups, they looked at their diet. So they didn't find, um, they found that the intakes of calories, macronutrients and B vitamins intake and the excretion of B vitamins in the urine didn't differ between the groups. 
you'd only find the women who benefited the most from the supplements by knowing their total alpha keto acids excretions. So it's not, go ahead. How did they, did they, did they clinically notice any change with supplementation that they reported? They didn't report it. And it, you know, it was, it wasn't a long study. Right. So, and it's not necessarily something that's like, whoa, I never thought of that. Like we talk about it, but the fact is that they had proved it and they can show that. Yeah. So, you know, it just feels better. (laughs) Yeah. When you know no, it's through human studies. Yeah, absolutely. It's very exciting <laughs> because we've been thinking about this. Well, going back to really like, you know, Linus Balling, arguably the father of functional medicine has been talking about sort of orthomolecular doses of nutrients to push biochemical pathways, you know, and then Bruce Ames came and has, you know, of course written and published on it extensively. And, and we, adopted these ideas and then some in functional medicine um, with the intuition that it's right. But yeah, it, I, I agree with you, Betsy. It's, it's absolutely imperative that we put some, you know, solid controlled science behind it. Yeah. I, yeah. I think as it's, you know, we move forward and I, you know, feel like I should give a little shout out to the Linus Pauling Institute. They have a nutrition center and they give great information. Just They really <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you yeah, on that. They I love a it. lot of good pathways and summaries. Yep. So. They do. They really do do diligence in their investigation. We'll put a link on for the Linus Pauling Institute uh, so you can find it if you haven't been over there. Um, all right. So what else do I want to ask you about? We were talking about, we were moving towards discussing, you know, how you're doing this in practice. Um you're looking at disease patterns and, and, you know, talk about some of those, some of those patterns that you're, that you're looking at. Yeah. And so I'm trying to take the research that's out there and like, what am I seeing in the, the results that I'm getting? Um, like, you know, branch chain amino acids and metabolic disease. I think that's pretty much out there. I mean, you know, right. we have continuously noted Yes. Link with elevated branch chain amino acids, kind of a metabolic signature, and it's associated with diabetes. Why is that? Do you know the why? I'm sorry. I'm completely cutting you. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) No, I mean, yeah. I mean, they, at first I thought, well, when I first heard it, I thought, well, it's related to obesity. Maybe people are just eating more. And so they're getting higher blood levels, but that's, they don't think that's it. So um, they're looking more into it. You know, so, but I think that's like the first one that I kind of really noticed. And then the other one that I'm kind of, um, you know, looking at now is the, the tryptophan pathway. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at the kinurinin to tryptophan ratio. It's awesome. Okay. Do, do educate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm always like, I'm here and I haven't heard of this. Um, and it's been around. Um, yeah. The, so the KTR ratio. And it's help, you know, it's helpful to have that full pathway when you look at tryptophan breakdown with kinurinin. So last time we had talked about this, we talked about the end of the pathway in NAD, but the beginning of the pathway has some, you know, key regulation. Well, talk to me about it. Like the, just give me a, just sketch out. So tryptophan's in, in an amino acid and, and right. just so, it's, can, talk about the kinurinin pathway and then give me the. Right. So tryptophan, you know, you get it from diet. It can go three main ways. It can go to serotonin. It can go to um, 
can urine in or get um, changed into to indoles. And most goes down, the vast majority goes down that can urine pathway. So when, you, when you're deciding what's, you know, and usually it's TDO is the enzyme, the tryptophan 2,3-dioxygenase is the enzyme that takes it down that pathway. So um, during inflammation, it's going to be under the control of IDO. So the canurinate to tryptophan ratio has been calculated to estimate IDO activity. Huh, and interesting. Lot, yeah, so a lot of people probably, you know, oh, okay, that makes sense. But wait, it's going to get more exciting. Um, so- I don't know that a lot of people would say that. <laughs> this, is a, this is a really unusual and, uh, and, and kind of exciting way to look at inflammation. All right, yeah. keep going. So, you know, it's related to, you know, excessive chronic inflammation. And this is canurinin not to be confused with canurinic acid, like canurinic acid or canurinate. That's a downstream. This mm-hmm. is canurinin. Canurinin come, it's the main product. It's the first stable product of the pathway. It's the central node of the pathway. And so it can go in three major ways also. So it can get converted to 3-hydroxycanurinin, which is kind of a more neurotoxic pathway, which then goes on to quinolinate and xanthurinate. It can get um, degraded to anthrilic acid with a B6-dependent enzyme, or it can get deaminated to canurinate via another B6 enzyme, which is more neuroprotective. So it can go all sorts of different ways. And then anthrilic acid can go back down into the 3-hydroxycanurinin pathway. So there are a lot of ways. You know, I always think, oh, I know this pathway. And then when you start looking at some keg pathway, it, it's, it's going all yeah. way. Yeah, I agree with you. The science in the tryptophan canurinin pathway is always evolving. I just wanted to say that people who are using organic acids, you look at canurin A all the time. I think it's on probably all of the panels in functional medicine. And when it's elevated, we think about it being a B6 deficiency um, when canurin A is elevated. And I just want to sort of, aka canurinic acid. So it's it could be listed as either name, depending on the panel that you're looking at. So kynurinate or kynurinic acid. And this is a downstream compound in the kynurinin pathway. Betsy's talking about the kynurinin pathway overall. So she's not specifically talking about kynurinic acid or she, she did just mention, mention uh, it. So but. I think that it, so it goes tryptophan to kynurinin and then it goes to canurinic acid or anthrilic acid or 3-hydroxy So it's got three different fates. Um, right. Okay. Which and then break down further. So I think it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, the, it's that tryptophan to canurinin. So you know, can't really take it right to the other one. I mean, there, there are some other good articles that, that look at that. There's a um, tryptophan metabolism in inflammation which is um, a biomarker of a therapeutic target. It's, um, it's Frontiers in Immunology, came out October 2019. Um, and it's a cool article too. It looks at, at two things, tryptophan depletion that are related to the, the KTR. Mm-hmm. Um, and so necessary to control inflammation. So it's looking at tryptophan depletion and can urinate activation. So tryptophan de- depletion is going to influence nutrient sensing. So it's something like, you know, GCN2 kinase is activated and that produces anti-inflammatory kinases. 
cytokines, um, and then activation of the IDO um, enzyme, which can prevent inflammation and pr promote tolerance. Um, and then mTOR is activated during tryptophan sufficiency. Hmm. So they're both important for metabolic control. So you're, you're kind of looking at changes in tryptophan and then activations, you know, increases of kenurinin. So kenurinin can activate um, the AHR, the tr transcription factor to control local and systemic immunity. So, you know, there's a lot of involvement here with the, with the immune system. So higher kenurinin increases Treg cells and that's via the AHR pathway. So essentially you wanna lower the KTR ratio. You wanna get tryptophan, you know, you don't want tryptophan to get depleted or kenurinin to build up. Can we measure kenurinin directly? Yes, yes, you can measure it in the blood and in the urine. So um, yeah, you can re measure it directly. And, and the KTL levels, They've been associated with, with like all sorts of things in research. This is what made me think like, why, is, why isn't this out and about? Yeah. Um, yeah. BMI, obesity, inflammation, renal failure, chronic kidney disease, cancer, sepsis, pregnancy. You know, like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> reduced cognition, you know, so a wow. high KTR in plasma or urine. Um, wow. The study of older adults was related to all-cause mortality. So... You just got through introducing us to the kinurenin pathway with the how complex it is and the different arms that it can take, like the different metabolic endpoints it can go to, some beneficial, others not. Um, but then you're circling back to the very beginning of the pathway, which is tryptophan being converted to kinurenin. And that ratio, so when kinurenin out is higher than tryptophan, um, even though some of those derivative molecules might be beneficial, overarching when that ratio is skewed, it is pro-inflammatory and associated with everything from obesity to cognitive decline, um, et cetera. Is that, is that correct? Am I understanding that? You are understanding it correctly. Awesome. All right. I, I agree with you. I think um, it would be really nice to have that ratio and to... Um, you know, really kind of infer, you know, or have a, have a, another solid sort of biochemical um, metabolomic marker for inflammation um, beyond, you know, some of the standard tried and true things that we look at that aren't that sensitive, you know, like CRP is great when it's great. Sed rate is great when it's great, but, you know, we obviously miss a lot of inflammation um, with those two markers. Yeah. I think it's just, as you said, in the very beginning, we need we need to be casting this wide net and um it's exciting i mean it's exciting that there's so much science behind it yeah i mean it's certainly the, the ktr ratio you know they propose it as as meeting the criteria for biological age markers. okay okay so the the kenurin to tryptophan ratio the ktr it, they proposed it as meeting the criteria as a biological age marker. And, and what's interesting in other studies is like vitamin B6 has been negatively correlated to the ratio. So it may be higher if you're B6 deficient. Weight loss has resulted in a decrease of the ratio. So along with 
you know, along with a decrease of tryptophan, can urinin and CRP and an increase in vitamin B6. So that was a single study. But um, they have preclinical and clinical studies that have revealed that there's also a variety of probiotics um, that have lowered the kinurin to tryptophan ratio. Oh, that's and there was a study that they find it did that, and it also alleviated depression symptoms. I was going to circle, I wanted to circle back to that, sort of spend a little time op on opener, you, you know, just the fact that tryptophan makes serotonin. And if it's all being diverted down this, the kinurin pathway, you're going to be, it's, it's, it's like a, a serotonin steal. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's a percentage. So yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of, that's the thing that they'll say, you know, that there's no, there's no tryptophan to make serotonin, which can, you know, also be impacted with gut. So, you know, yeah, I had another, you know, article that I was looking at um, of the ratio, looking at tryptophan with, um, with Alzheimer's disease. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, the, 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 I'm not at all an Alzheimer's expert, but I know that we're all concerned about it because, you know, we're headed that way. So there's going to be so many people, you know, who develop Alzheimer's as, you know, the decades go on and the population ages, and then that they think there may be an impact with COVID. Um, so there's an article, um, and I think it's, it's in the, it's linked in there, that metabolic phenotyping reveals a reduction in the bioavailability of serotonin and kinurinin pathway metabolites in both urine and serum of individuals diagnosed with living with Alzheimer's disease. And that came out in January, 2021. And they looked at metabolic phenotyping. You know, they looked at 560 people, um, urine metabolites, and 350 with serum. And they had people divided into Alzheimer's disease, mild cognitive impairment, and normal cognition. You know, so you kind of want to get yourself earlier on that spectrum. But um, Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease was associated with impaired um, can you urinate pathway and inflammation? So, and disruption in serotonin signaling, hmm. so both pathways. And just the same with depression. I mean, they both get impaired. So overall with the Alzheimer's patients, there was an overall trend for lower tryptophan metabolites in those with Alzheimer's disease compared to mild cognitive impairment and normal. So, huh. so it was graded in all of them. So all those tryptophan markers were going to be um, were going to be lower in Alzheimer's disease. So it was it was most significant in um, serum tryptophan, kinurinin, and xanthurinic acid. Huh. So and then serum kinurinin and well and urine 5-HIA. So the breakdown product. Yeah, 5-hydroxyindole um, tryptophan, the breakdown product of serotonin, both of those um, correlated positively with age. So, I mean, I think in the other, the earlier study I talked about, you know, they, their big thing is as you age, you know, inflammation, right. kinurinin is, is going to go up and tryptophan is going to go down. Because, uh, the, because, because it's just being pushed in the, into the kinurinin pathway. Yeah. And I, you know, and it's, it's, you know, there's inflammation just with aging. Right. So the, so the indolamine dioxygenase 
enzyme is turned on in the inflammatory journey, pushing tryptophan towards a pro-inflammatory kynurenin pathway mm -hmm. versus the other enzyme that's kind of the if I'm using it correctly, the constitutively active enzyme, the the TDO enzyme, that's that's uh, that that will take kynurenin to um, NAD. So that TDO is going to be overridden by IDO and the inflammatory journey. Right. That, right. right. Yeah. So I think you know just yes. <laughs> so I mean, in their study, they even found that the urine kynurenin to tryptophan ratio was higher in Alzheimer's patients. Hmm. And it positively correlated with MMSE, the mini mental state exam. Interesting. And so. what about the mild, the mild um, cognitively impaired folks? W were you able to pick up some of these perturbations sort of on yeah, a continuum? It, were they, yeah, were there some it, abnormalities so we could use this as a kind of an early investigation? Exactly. Yeah, no, it was graded. All the markers were graded. You know, huh. they kind of just tanked down. Interesting. So okay. They, they also talked about, which I thought was interesting, that fecal calprotectin, which is a marker of intestinal inflammation. Yeah. It's, they found it to be negatively associated. Well, they're talking about other studies um, with serum essential amino acids in people with Alzheimer's disease. So they're wondering, is there a disturbance in the intestinal barrier? You know, that function leading lower you know, a lowering of the ability to absorb essential amino acids. Interesting. So calprotectin, which is a marker of inflammation, when it's very, very high, we want to be thinking about cancer, but it is evidence of inflammation in the gut. So when that creeps up, it was associated with lower circulating essential amino acids. Yeah. I mean, hmm. part of it, they're wondering, like, you know, would people have Alzheimer's? They have um, altered, you know, appetite and things, but was this making an impact? Right, right. You wonder about serotonin, you know, that all in the gut and how that's also being impacted. Well, and just the fact that you said earlier that probiotics could favorably influence the tryptophan kynurenin ratio. Yeah. I mean, so that just linking those together, starting with the gut, you know, <laughs> again, a key area, I, I guess I think of too, you know, just knowing that some of the microbes and if they're out of balance can, can, will act on tryptophan and gobble it right up. And so it makes sense to me that, you know, a good probiotic protocol could perhaps shift that. Yeah. No, right. you know, I think that it's, you know, it's, it's the whole picture. <laughs> well, listen, let me ask you something then just going back to this. So you're working with a patient. What, I mean, how are you going to, and you see that they've got an elevated kynurenin and tryptophan ratio. Maybe we'll throw in an elevated calprotectin or some, you know, I mean, what are you, how are you thinking about them clinically? What are you doing with them? Well, yeah, I'm going to think that I'm, I want to bring it down. I'm going to look at, you know, what they're, where they're at, what they're actually doing. But then I'm going to look at, you know, the things that have been proven, you know, do they need any weight loss that, you know, that yeah. seems to be helpful. Do they have any need for B6? How is their nutrient status? Mm -hmm. You know, their level of inflammation, you know, and then just overall gut bacteria. I mean, I think that, you know, I, my thing, and I think we've probably discussed this, that, 
you know, one day you're going to get, you know, you're going to get all your, your SNPs and all your, you know, gut bacteria markers and all your amino acids and organic acids. And right. you're going to file everything, inflammation, and, and file it into a big AI thing that will tell you what you need to do. Right. And that probably will only last until you bring thing in balance, you know, just given your environment and everything. So we'll use artificial intelligence to crunch many, 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 many data points and spit out a decidedly individualized plan for us at that moment, at that snapshot. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It gets to be, it gets to be a lot when you're trying to pull all these things together. You're, you are in it. Well, you're a real, you're not artificial intelligence. You're real intelligence. Yes. You're doing it. You're RI. <laughs> you're the RI right now. Um so, I mean, I was going to say, and one of the other things that I always look at is that, that glutamine. But, well, before we, I want to, I want to talk about that ratio, but I just, I'm curious about the probiotics that, that brought down the, um, the KTR. What, what are they? Do you know, do you remember? Or can we link yeah. to that paper? Yeah. Yeah. I'll link Let's to that. Let's link to that paper. Yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm curious about yeah. that. Hey, you, you're having trouble staying focused. You want to run, get that article right now. No, <laughs> but I meant to circle back to it. But it sounds to me like you're doing, you know, pretty good. You're taking a good functional medicine approach. So the patient presents it to you with complications X, Y, and Z. And of course you're considering those, but then you're, you know, obviously you're thinking about gut health, you're thinking about absorption and digestion, et cetera. You're thinking about nutrients and, you know, what they might need to do if they need to lose weight or if they need to be you know, engaging in exercise, et cetera, et cetera. But it sounds like, it sounds like it's kind of a good, it's a good system slash functional medicine approach. Yeah. I mean, you may end up doing kind of the same things that everybody needs to do right. <laughs> just with more evidence of its, of its requirement. It's re- there's a refinement there. I mean, who, as you, as you pointed out, who doesn't want to be correcting a, very evidence-informed underlying cause of Alzheimer's, you know, that's going to walk you right strongly on that trajectory and the, uh, and, and the, the myriad associated, you know, conditions like diabetes and depression and, you know, obesity, et cetera. Um, And aging. And as you said before, aging. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody comes in with aging and then whatever else they bring along with it. All right. I do indeed want to know about the, um, <laughs> the, the GSG index. So talk to me about that ratio. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just one I like to look at. I think, you know, that's, um, I think I'd written that blog years ago on that. Um, and, you know, it just, the GSG index was positively correlated with liver enzymes and it was able to discriminate stage of liver fibrosis. And so it may, you know, help in identifying severity of liver disease. So I think that's kind of just a nice one. I mean, obviously it's not, you know, they're not diagnostic, but they do kind of give a, uh, a direction. And then the, the other one I look at is what I call the castor ratio. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that ratio, you know, it's proposed by, um, somebody who wrote an article, their last name was Castor. So I've been calling it that. Um, and the, the article they had was urine di- dicarboxylic acids change in pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's disease reflect a loss of energy capacity 
and hippocampal volume. It's from PLOS One 2020. Um, you know, I thought this one was really exciting too. That's um, really interesting. Yeah, so they what they did was they looked at urine dicarboxylic acids of carbon lengths of three to 10, and then they did an MRI in this group of older adults. And the study participants were divided into two main groups, neurological study. They did some neurological studies and they put them in um, to, you know, and then they also did beta amyloid and tau ratios based on um, cerebral spinal fluid. And they had them in cognitively healthy and clinically probably Alzheimer's disease. But then they took the, um, the healthy group wow. and then they subdivided that into asymptomatic low-risk individuals uh-huh. so who were, um, you know, had um, normal amyloid tau ratios and then um, asymptomatic high-risk individuals who were cognitive health, cognitively healthy but had pathological amyloid tau ratios. Hmm. So, no, I'd be kind of scared to be in that group. I know you're good now, but um, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so they were, it's the same thing with the, you know, looking at the, the KTR ratio in Alzheimer's mild, mild cognitive impairment. Um, so they wanted to see, you know, what, what happens with that. So um, they looked at the, you know, they found that the the DCAs, the dicarboxylic acids, uh-huh. had an 82% ability to predict cognitively healthy participants. So um, with normal, you know, spinal fluid, amyloid tau. Huh. Um, and that they reported that in Alzheimer's disease, compared to the controls, this is where it gets interesting if I've lost you. Um, yep, no, we're here. I'm here. <laughs> that urine, so when they looked at it, the C4, which is succinic acid, and C5, which is glutaric acids, were both individually and, and together lower in Alzheimer's disease. And C7, which is um, pimolic acid, C8, which is subaric, and C9, which is azelaic acid, were all individually and as a group higher. In Alzheimer's compared to healthy controls. So and it's it's and it's associated the ratio um, with an accumulation of amyloid. So what they're saying is to look at the mean values of C4 and C5 and then um, have that a ratio with the mean values of C7, 8, and 9. So you so what you really want is higher, lower short chain C4 and C5. Higher, smaller ones. Yeah. And, and, and lower C7, 8. So, but what if you don't, what do you do? What, what's the intervention? Well, um, I, I think that they, it's more of identification and those kind of things that you're going to find like, okay. Where so using it as a diagnostic at? tool. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously not diagnostic of Alzheimer's disease or suggestive, suggestive of early potentially early, another early perturbation that we could identify. Right, right. So, you know, they're, you know, they're looking at the, you know, the difference with it. So if, right. if you have a, you know, impairment, when you look at C4 and C5, those are, you know, maybe dysfunctional brain mitochondria may account for that dysfunction. I mean, sesame 
and glutarate are going to contribute to energy metabolism. And so that may impact um, mitochondrial function. Right. I mean, when you look at the group as a whole, and if you download the, um, the article, which is mm-hmm. a great article, and it has good diagrams, which I always appreciate. Um, and when they, when they break them down, succinate by far is the highest, it's 40%. And all the other ones are anywhere from one to 14%. And how, what's the carbon length of succinate? Um, succinate's the four. Four, yeah. Um, okay, so then the way that I would use it, because again, you know, just thinking about translating this into clinical practice is you've got this abnormal ratio, the caster ratio in a cognitively solid individual, or maybe there's some early cognitive shifts, really regardless, I guess, of where you are on the continuum. But if we were using this as sort of a pre- preventative analysis, I mean, we're going to get in there with all of the other usual functional medicine areas. So you talked about the tryptophan kynurenin ratio being off, or is it the, it's the kynurenin tryptophan ratio. I mean, you're just (laughs) going to kind of, KTR, but you're going to just cast that wide net. So even if there isn't necessarily a specific intervention for the caster ratio, you're going to be doing everything else and then retesting. Right, right. And you're going to, you know, look, are those energy things? And there's also, um, you know, when they look at the long ones, the C7, 8, and 9, and those are like Subaric, Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's ones you often look at. Um, so they are looking at, it's proposed that there's, there's fragile double, double bonds and unsaturated fat, fatty acids within the brain. And right. that those are going to, you know, increase. So, um, so that you're going to have loss of, loss of, t- um, tissue loss pro- progresses. And it's been proposed that those fragile double bonds I get all so excited <laughs> and unsaturated fatty acids are going to increase and it's going to cause them to break down and that ultimately those are going to get excreted in the urine. So they're proposing that DC, that those DCAs are formed from oxidation of the breakdown of the unsaturated fatty acids. So urine levels of the C7 and C9 positively correlated with um, cerebral spinal fluid tau levels hmm. and, and higher level of those were also associated with lower hippocampal volume. Well, so C4 and C5s associated with more energy efficient balance. Hmm. So you can then like, what is that oxidative stress? What are those things? What, right. how can you fix any kind of right. energy efficient balance? You know, as much like as it. you can, but I think it's just really nice to give you, and it's also graded, you know, so the people, who have the, you know, who are normally, you know, normal cognition are going to have those high C4, C5s and low 7, 8, 9. And then that flips um, when you look at Alzheimer's, but they're about equal when you look at the kind of the people in the middle who are normal cognitive. Let me just ask you, I mean, your head is in the science. So you have a clinical practice, but you're spending a lot of time, you know, tweaking these and thinking about them and then, you know, applying them as much as you can in clinical practice. I know we haven't had these tools at the ready just yet. I, I obviously, I hope so soon. And I know people listening are there, everybody's ears are perking up because we have a Alzheimer's epidemic. I mean, I, I'm thinking about Dale Bredesen who, um, you know, I've been chatting with recently. I did a 
I published our own study looking at aging that I was talking to you about before, and he is interested in whether his Alzheimer protocol reverses biological aging um, as well. And, and, you know, they're doing a broad functional slash systems approach and, you know, getting remarkable turnaround. And I, it just, it's, I can't help but wonder about what's happening in the metabolome with the, the participants. Since they're improving, they must be turning these around. And, and I, it was just, it would, it just would be a, a, a cool thing to use there. But I digress from my original point <laughs> here, which was, um, we're going to, we need assistance. You know, we all don't, we, we're all not a, um, an AI brain like yours. You know, we're not spending our time in the literature on these. And so we're going to need some really, we're going to need some handholding, some easy like turnkey tools to be able to identify the ratios, to identify, you know, the associations and the imbalances. So I just, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, how are we going to use this in clinical, in a very busy clinical practice, you know, with two minutes to digest this? Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll say it's not, I wouldn't say because it's my brainiac. It's probably because I'm at home reading articles and you guys are out living hip lives. Um, so. <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> Indeed, no doubt. Yeah, That's right. I see you in the club scene. Um, so, you know, I break it down when I look at it. I look at six main areas that I'm really looking for. Um, so I look at all those markers that are associated with metabolic issues, like the key metabolic issues getting into the Krebs cycle. I look at like, the breakdown of all the amino acid pathways, like what are those? So those pathways. Um, I look at, is there any, are there any key nutrition things that I think that are relating to those? Um, you know, just the toxins. I look at stress and mood. And then I look at the metabolites that the, the microbes my, mm -hmm. microbial might be given off. So, um, so I just, you know, kind of try to break it down. You I, like yeah, I break it down to it. those kind of, yeah, sound bite it. So I can see what's, what's going on where, mm -hmm. you know, but yeah, you know, it's, I mean, there's not one easy way. That's why it takes a lot, you know, so I'm trying well, you're to going to make us this doable for us when we've got a real time metabolomic assay you know, you're going to be, we're, we'll meet again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you'll, and you'll walk us through an easy interpretation. I'm thrilled about it. I mean, gosh, Betsy, you have such a command of the literature and it's, you know, I'm as excited about you as, as you are with the possibility, especially given the fact that there's human stu studies. And I know forever, your entire career, you've been really wanting to find the human data and, and, and encouraging people to research it. But the, and these aren't little numbers, you know, we're not talking about N of six. I was looking at the number of participants in an earlier study you referenced, and there were almost 8,000 people um, in one of the um, Kenyan and tryptophan ratio studies. So it's just, you know, these, this, this, this isn't chump change research and I appreciate you bringing it um, front of mind. So let's see, as we, as we, well, actually I've got two more questions for you. So you've, you've got these six areas that you look at, which seems essential to have some kind of a easy pattern analysis. And then, but do you see a lot of overlap within these areas? Yeah, I do. I, I do see significant overlap, you know, certainly um, when you're, the, they don't just go straight down by, by themselves. So, you know, you're going to have to see what's going on. Um, 
you know, I think something I like to look at, you know, try to find now is, you know, is looking at cortisol and its impact in some of these. Um, certainly cortisol is going to have an impact right. on, you know, tryptophan breakdown on sure. methylation down, uh, with phenylalanine. So those are also related to mood. Um, I think I listed, you know, there's a nice, small, simple 2020 study about stress and serum cortisol levels in major depressive disorder. And it's huh. just, you know, it's not, it's not groundbreaking, but it's, it's kind of nice that they just look at, you know, high cortisol, is one of the most, you know, the relevant mechanisms involved in response to stress, and it's present in people with um, major depressive disorder, you know, and they find that in people and unfortunately um, in animals subject, subjected to stress. Um, so, you know, they really aim to investigate um, what the levels of, you know, levels of stress and cortisol in major depression. And, and I like the study partly because it was done at the Laboratory of Translational Psychiatry. Wow. Um, done in Brazil and then partly at University of Southwest Texas. And I thought, you know, I want a laboratory of translational, you know, internal medicine of gastroenterology. I want yeah. everybody to have that. Yeah. They, yeah, that's pretty cool. Fine. Yeah. So just higher cortisol levels. Um, and I, so I think that's a good one to, to, to throw in. So, you know, urinary- well, there's, there's an inverse relationship in cortisol and brain size, I believe, right? And specifically like the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, and I looking at that whole HPA axis, I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, just the whole circadian rhythm, um, you know, and the circadian rhythm is not one rhythm. It's all those sleeping, eating, all those kind of things. Um, and looking at the HPA axis too. Um, and then just, you know, where is their cortisol levels? You know, what, what's happening at, at that point? Um, yeah. You know, is, are they getting any kind of, you know, ele elevated cortisol or, or sure. corticoid resistance? Like when you look at cortisol, there's, you know, the urinary cortisol measurements and that can, you know, look at cortisol secretion over time. And it may be, you know, maybe, you know, as, more reliable than plasma or salivary, which are going to be you know, subject to, to diurnal variations, fluctuations, and, and unless that's what you want to look at. Um, so about 1% of the plasma cortisol. Well, it's easier to collect. I mean, and then arguably, I'll just put you on the spot, isn't the collection itself potentially stress-inducing if you're getting a blood draw? I guess for some people, yeah. Anyway, yeah, for some people, certainly, and having to get up and go. <laughs> go, yeah, who wants to go to the home? Right. <laughs> Especially husband. if it's, right, that's right, right. <laughs> Especially if it's fasting and you can't have your coffee. <laughs> yeah. I won't say, I won't say whose who's issue that is. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's probably equal. Yeah, well, it's well, about then one the coffee would influence your cortisol as well. It would, it would, oh, and it's going to make a lot of downstream things go up. <laughs> Yeah, they, um, <laughs> I think it's about 1% of the plasma cortisol is excreted in the urine. But I've also wow. seen studies where a spot urine gave comparable results to 24 hours. Okay. So, which I think is stress inducing to have to carry that jug around. For <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that is so funny. Right. We need to do a study on the influence of different collection methods. <laughs> I mean, I remember at the lab when we would be working on a different 
you know, analysis and there'd be urine jugs, everybody would be testing, you know, everybody would be involved in sample yeah. collection, all of us. Which worked fine if you're working on a lab. But, you know, yeah, if you're actually in a lab, nobody there. cares that there's like urine jugs. Well, you're out to dinner and you have to run, get your, you have to get your urine jug. I'll be right back. <laughs> That's right. Oh my goodness. That's so funny. Um, so, so yeah, so just that, the, the, that, you know, there's research that the amount of cortisol in the urine reflects the average cortisol in the blood. So, you know, I just, I like that study because it was simple. That's cool. Yeah. Cortisol is a good marker to kind of help kind of bring some other things together. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it is a useful marker. Okay. All right. So we're on the home stretch here. And I just want to ask you one more question. I mean, we know from back in the day that there are, you know, that our gut microbe makes all sorts of um, metabolomic compounds, you know, the, the compounds of their own um, metabolic activity. And some of these are, are relevant and some of these are probably, you know, pretty useless and just being eliminated in our urine as they should be. But what are some of the markers that you're looking at thinking about these days? Oh, my, uh, for microbial stuff. Um, oh, it's my new favorite. You know, I look at everything. I want to look at, <laughs> I want to look at like how the yeah, amino acids or polyphenols are, you know, going to get um, metabolized, but all like specifically I'm looking at like isoflavones. I think equal, you know, when you look at that research, just looking at, you know, urinary equal is really helpful clinically to kind of give some direction. I mean, right. it's the, the assumption that, you know, some clients are going to, you know, they're going to take isoflavones or some are going to eat soy and are they getting a benefit from it? And you just don't know. Well, give me the, give me the background. Like, why do we care about equal? Well, there's a lot of research, you know, research suggests um, equal mm -hmm. is anti-atherogenic. It improves arterial stiffness. It may prevent coronary heart disease. It's been related to cognitive impairment and function. Um, there's actually a NIH study of equal producers in Alzheimer's disease that started in 2017 and it finishes next month. So mm. that'll be interesting. Huh. Um, equal producers compared to non-producers. It's like, ah, fingers crossed, you're an equal producer. Um, had significantly lower prevalence of coronary uh, coronary, um, the, the calcium score, the CAC mm -hmm, score. Mm -hmm. um, there's a big study in 743 women and equal producers had significantly lower brachial ankle pulse weight velocity, lower femoral pulse velocity and coronary artery calcium score. So are huh. we're all going to help, you know, predict future coronary vascular events. Huh. It, it, it may have greater, um, cognitive benefit that just dietary soy because equal has higher antioxidant properties. It's got greater or similar affinity for estrogen receptor beta. It's got longer bioavailability, bioavailability and the ability to increase mitochondrial activity than just dietary so sources. So you kind of have to, you know, it has a lot of benefits, but this is awesome. We have to actually, so it's bacterial, our gut microbiome acts on the soy that we're consuming, whatever that is, and converts or doesn't to equal. 
Right, right. It's it's gut bacteria. It's not genetics. So when they look at like Western populations, only 20 to 30 percent are equal producers, but it's much higher up to like 75 percent, maybe even higher in Asian populations. But it's not genetics. It's gut bacteria. It's amazing. Once you get there, it's pretty stable, they find. So and, and I've seen some reports that vegans and vegetarians are going to be higher, maybe not quite as high as aging populations, but, you know, westernized vegans and vegetarians are going to be higher. And, and there, you know, there are some studies that have converted people, you know, you're, you'd be an equal converter. Um, you know, it, it takes a little bit of time. And it may be that vegans and vegetarians are getting soy and they're building their gut bacteria. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, it'll be pretty interesting to see I, I, it ha- the, the bugs that are able to produce equal like we don't do we we don't know who those guys are do we no yeah that's so interesting I, I mean i didn't see them in the literature and, and you know that's more ai learning is going to find that that's going to be super and well not only that but maybe the other nutrients being consumed with soy you know do you if you're eating sort of a veggie burger mcdonald's equivalent and a whole bunch of you know processed garbage are you going to be making equal as efficiently from that veggie burger soy meal versus you know somebody who's consuming like a fermented soy with you know a ton of greens i I, it'll be interesting to see how the soy needs to be consumed i guess we could look to asia you know we could look to soy preparation there which it'd be interesting like fermented or not fermented or Right, you know, with the young the young kids who are starting to have a coke and a you know, yeah, right. Are they making for lunch? Right, right, right. Fascinating. I I'm with you. I'm a big fan of um the possibility of equal. Um, I know there's a there's a a stable equal form is available now as a supplement. I, you know, but what is that? You know, I, I, I think that they did a, a study looking at hot flashes. I don't know how large it was or anything like that, but it showed some benefit. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I don't know where, whether we'll start to use, you know, supplemental equal, but I, I, I am a big fan of, of soy-based iso, isoflavones. I mean, I think they've got a lot of, a lot of potential and um, paying attention to whether or not we can activate to this all important equal, I think is really pretty cool. Right. And maybe if you are a producer, you can take advantage of that. Yeah. And right. continue with that. And if you're not, maybe, you know, I think there's certainly be more research on, you know, we need more research. Yeah. Cause, cause, cause it's not the only, it's not the only player from, from soy that's beneficial, but so maybe, so, so I don't know that we would say you can't make equal, therefore don't consume soy, but maybe we would lean heavier on different, you know, polyphenols, flavonoids. Right. Yeah, I think we're going to yeah. find the pathway to become a producer. And certainly like soy has protein, it has isoflavones, and those both yeah. have different, different, uh, you know, benefits. And, and maybe, you know, the September 30th, when the NIA trial comes out, they'll have, you know, some more, more information. So that'll, you know, help find who, how to convert. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. We'll pay attention. Let me know. Keep us posted. I'd love to post keep us posted and we'll post on it when that when that study comes out um well listen dr redmond it's always good to get to connect with you and and hang out with you in cyberspace and you know pick your amazing brain and 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 get up on uh on on the current omics 
so yeah, do keep us posted. And again, folks, you will find the many citations um, Betsy referenced in the show notes, as well as a link to our first conversation um, and anything else that she finds along the way that she feels she needs to uh, post. <laughs> that could be dangerous. Yeah, it could be dangerous, indeed, but it'll be, it'll be, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it'll be, it'll be valuable and maybe funny too. All right, Betsy, thanks again for, for joining me. Okay. Thank you.